0: Have you ever had uh, someone who really lived out the reality that it is well with my soul? And they had a a really tough situation. And yet they could say in in the midst of what looked like carnage to the rest of the world, they could say, it's well with my soul. I had a friend like that. And he was approaching death at the age of 53 Everything looked horrendous for him in terms of his life. Uh, when I'd become a Christian in 2003, he was friends with my mom. She introduced me to him. She used to write each other letters. And leading up to when he was about to die, he would constantly share scripture with me. And I would write to him about heaven. We just really encouraged each other in the faith. And he was someone that could de- definitively say it's well with his soul. Meaning it's good with him and God, so regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what's going on, that he could face death with an assurance. We're moving into a teaching series uh, and the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are discipleship steps. They start the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, they're a summary, those uh, statements, blessed are you uh, or blessed are the uh, those are statements that summarize the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. When I think of my friends and I start going to teach these Beatitudes, he always comes to mind. It's like an upside-down kingdom that Jesus has. So the setting is Jesus has been doing miracles. Crowds are following him. He's been teaching all around Galilee. And disciples who he's chosen, he's called them out, he's chosen them. He goes up onto a mountainside to get away from the crowds, and he sits down. And calls his disciples to him, and he starts teaching them. And he's saying, this is what a disciple of me looks like. This is what a follower of me looks like. And he just flips worldly values upside down. Because Jesus was a big celebrity at the time. Like, the crowd just loved to see what he was doing. It could have been a very prestigious position to have been chosen to be one of Jesus' disciples. Like, hey, I'm with him. Oh, yeah, I'm really close friends with him. I know what he had for breakfast. And yet the disciples, Jesus saying, look, if you really want to follow me, this is what it's going to look like. So next four weeks, we're going to be going over the Beatitudes, which are consecutive steps to discipleship. I'm going to read uh, from Matthew, uh, the Beatitudes of 5, verse 1 to 12. I'm actually going to read from 4.23 because it sets the scene, and then I'll pray for us. Verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And he continues, this isn't the Beatitudes, but he just summarizes the teaching. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is saying, hey, you're going to be persecuted. Every worldly value that you've held to, if you want to follow me, It's going to be turned upside down. Later on, he says, as he predicts his death for the first time to his disciples, he said, what good is it to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? And you'll see the Beatitudes kind of teach that as well. They teach what Jesus is doing. He's teaching, he says, what matters is inside. A pure heart, a heart that surrendered to God, a heart that has responded to Jesus' ministry. None of these outside religious externals matter. Worldly people may think, yes, you're impressive, but God is not impressed by that. So God is impressed by meek people, those who mourn. And so they're finding out exactly what that means in these Beatitudes. Now you'll see some of the Beatitudes also in Luke 6. It could have been the same speech. It could have been different speeches. Scholars say, uh, verse 23, when it says Jesus is teaching all over Galilee, uh, it's doing it for a few weeks, scholars say that these uh, Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount is likely students' notes, like the pertinent points from what Jesus was teaching. It teached for hours and hours and hours. You read the Beatitudes, it's probably just 40 minutes. So these are the things that really drew them out. You see a couple of them in Luke. Uh, Matthew has chosen the ones here specifically, because they're like steps towards God. Progressive steps. We're going to look at the first two now. It's verse 3. We'll look at this one first. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Cyprus is known as the happy isle, the blessed isle in Greece. Now, the word blessed doesn't really occur in the New Testament apart from when Jesus speaks of it, makarios. It's uh, related a lot in the Old Testament, and it means that close connection with God. Now, Cyprus is called uh, makarios, the happy isle, which they say if you live on Cyprus, you wouldn't want for anything. Perfect geographical location, uh, really, really good weather, fertile soil. Like if you live there, you'd never, leave, never need to leave the island. Everything you want is there. So, this word blessed kind of means like a self contained well being. Specifically, Makarios is a state of well being in relationship to God, to those who respond to Jesus' ministry. And it's a state of well-being regardless of our circumstance. It means that some people are able to face death and say, it is well with my soul. When the world will be looking at them thinking, there's one life and it's about to end for you. Jesus talks through these progressive discipleship steps. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Someone who is poor in spirit is an incredibly healthy person. Someone who's poor in spirit is spiritually bankrupt. Why, if we're spiritually bankrupt, would that be incredibly healthy? Well, the reality is, someone who's spiritually bankrupt has become more self-aware, and they've become more God-aware. And they're saying, they're saying, I cannot save myself. Like, God is so different from me. There's no way I can reach up to him. Now, some people will have that understanding through looking at the night sky, reading all different kinds of literature, and just thinking, God is so holy and other. I'm never going to reach him. And most of us really crash and burn in different situations. And we have a life of regret and disappointment. And we say, "I, I can't ever make amends for some of the things I've done. Some of the people I've hurt, some of the things I've said, some of the thoughts I've thought, I can't save myself. I've used the analogy before, and I'm going to regularly use it. God is like the stars. It doesn't matter where you are on that mountain. If you're at the beginning of the mountain, uh, if you're near the top of the mountain, you will never reach the stars. So someone who is spiritually bankrupt has realized like the ladder I've got on the top of the mountain, I may have 23 rungs on it and my neighbor just has two, but I am never going to reach God. And it's the same realization the person thinks, I don't even have a ladder and I'm just starting out on the mountain. It's, it's a self-awareness and a self-awareness and a God-awareness allows us to understand we cannot save ourselves. It's the heart of of uh, Christian faith. Calvin in the Institutes of Religion, book one, chapter one, paragraph one, he says, if you know yourself in terms of our depravity and our darkness and our predispositions towards sin, he says, you'll really know God. Like you, you can't reach up to him. And he also says, if you know God and how holy he is, you'll equally know yourself that you can't reach up to him. And although that would seem like really, really bad news, it's actually good news. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now listen to this promise, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has been teaching about this kingdom. The crowds are watching. The disciples are finding out more about it. He says, if you're spiritually bankrupt, you you can have what I represent. It's the essence of the Beatitudes. It's the essence of the Sermon on the Mount. He closes the Beatitudes again, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what this means is if you're spiritually bankrupt and you know you are spiritually bankrupt, you are most likely to get saved. So if you know you cannot save yourself, then you're much more likely to be able to respond to God, to respond to his grace. So grace is is unique in all of the religions. Grace is God reaching down. No other religion has that. Other religions have, you can have earned God's favor, like the great bean counter in the sky. But no, if you're spiritually bankrupt, Jesus is saying, you'll know that God has reached down. I mean, he, he knows intimately he is God. And he's walking among these people. So Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10 is the best summary of the gospel uh, in the epistles. I'm going to read it to you. Listen about how bad the condition of every single person is without Christ. Uh, sorry, I said Colossians. Ephesians two ten here we go. As for you, this means everyone. As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So God doesn't really care where you are on the mountain, how many rungs your ladder has. Saying so you really cannot save yourself. Now, you might have inherited the whole world. You may have great prestige and power and influence and wealth. But it doesn't count anything to God. In fact, it can hide the fact that we are an object of God's wrath. It can hide the fact that we're spiritually bankrupt if we feel very, very rich in every, uh, every other area of our life. And it continues, verse 4, "...but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved." And here is the bit where God raises us up. He reaches down, and then he raises us up to be with him, verse 6, "...and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus." in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed to, his, uh, to us uh, in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. My friend who I was speaking about at the very beginning of the message, he had made a complete and utter mess of his life. Like he had nothing that you would particularly want. Kind of got what he deserved in lots of different areas. But in the midst of kind of crashing and burning in every single area, hurting himself and hurting others, he realized he was spiritually bankrupt and gave his life to Christ. Now, each one of us may not be facing death as close as my friend was, but the reality is each one of us has disabilities. Each one of us has character defects, and some of us are just more visible than other people's but every single person has them. And the world says, don't worry about them. And Jesus is saying, you need to worry about them. You need to realize that you cannot save yourself. Now, lots of us, depending on what character disabilities we have, or defects rather, we medicate with different things. Sometimes it's addictions, sometimes it's idols. Here are some that we Probably do. Imagine this if I say different words. Imagine it being taken from your life and imagine how you react. Control. If something changes in your life where you're not in control anymore, does that affect the state of your well being? You're able to say, oh, it's well with my soul, although everything's chaos. Food. That's one for me. I know it's an idol and yet I keep going back to it. You take it away. Uh, I do not resemble a Christian. <laughs> work. Work. It's a really uh, permitted idol and addiction in today's society. Can you work really hard? Can you do your very best? Can you have influence? Can you have power? Can you sacrifice so much for this greater good? Another one, Devices. What happens when you take away a cell phone for the day? When we use that as a punishment for our kids, there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. But there's many different things, just a simple thing that we take out of our lives and we realize, no, all of us have issues. All of us have these cruxes which we rely upon for support, but they're not God. And they're delusional they kind of give us an illusion that everything's fine, and you take it away, and suddenly it isn't. Now, this is the first step to coming to faith, realizing that we cannot save ourselves. For me, I was a drug addict. When you're a drug addict, there's lots of different ways you've made yourself bankrupt. I was very much aware of the carnage around me. I was very much aware of the direction my life was going in. And despite being aware of these things, when you're an addict, you cannot stop it. Like, you try all the time, but you're just aware, like, I, I think I've overdone this. I didn't plan to be like this, but you see yourself just heading towards destruction. It's like getting on the Titanic, knowing it's going to sink, and you're like, I still can't help myself but get on the Titanic. So I had this spiritual bankruptcy, and then when I heard who God was, that he was Jesus and he offered forgiveness, probably for somewhat selfish motivations, I wanted that, because I was very much aware I couldn't save myself. Probably in a lack of understanding, look at some other people's lives, think they could probably save themselves, but I know myself, I cannot. So it's the first step in coming to a relationship with Jesus. The reality is, it's a daily step. It's a daily understanding. Now, God doesn't want us to go through our daily lives completely broken. Like I am wrecked. I am spiritually bankrupt. And that's my posture for the day. Now, God wants us to know that we cannot save himself so that we're close to him during the day. It's So much better to have the, the wealth of our soul based on the character of God, which is unchanging, than it is on any situation in our lives. Here are some of the things that the world values, which can creep into our lives on a daily basis. And this is the upside-down nature of the kingdom, pride. Take pride in your work. Uh, Take pride in your reputation. Take pride in your abilities. Independence. We get really proud when we're really independent. We get really frustrated when we're dependent. The reality is we're dependent on God for every single breath that we take. Self-sufficiency. It's great when parents lead their kids up towards self-sufficiency. And it's very kind of tempting. I remember thinking I knew it all at the age of 17. I remember getting my first paycheck and thinking I'm taking over the world. It's kind of delusional, but self-sufficiency is a big deal in the world. Power, influence, these all carried great weight in Jesus' time as well. These would sort of influenced the disciples. And he sat down and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Of heaven. Second thing he comes to, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So after we've been spiritually bankrupt, the word mourn here means to be deeply grieved at our sinfulness, being deeply grieved at who we have become, being deeply grieved at who we can be. And the promise is beautiful. The promise is you'll be comforted. That means two things. One, your loving Father will wrap His arms around you and bring you close to Him. And He does that while forgiving us at the same time. So if you feel spiritually bankrupt, you're grieved at what you're doing and can do and always seem to have a predisposition towards. If you're grieved at that, God will draw close to you and He will forgive you. And yes, our forgiveness of sins is once for all in Christ's death on the cross. But on a daily basis, it's good to confess and agree with God. 1 John 1, 8 to 9. So he was the disciple that Jesus loved. He says this, and we did a teaching series in John recently. Uh, verse 8, actually, it says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I don't know what secret is happening in each one of our lives. I don't know what disability we are hiding or carrying. I don't know what character defect rears its ugly head from time to time. But God does, and he offers forgiveness every single day time. And that doesn't mean what we do is not bad. It means that God is incredibly rich and incredibly generous. And if you draw close to him, you inherit everything the relationship with the heavenly father brings. That's why Jesus says, what good is it to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? We live in the between period. Christ has come, is coming again. The kingdom is already, and it's a little bit not yet. And so the disciples are going to know persecution. By worldly standards, Christianity looks really dumb. Really, you're going to deny yourself all of these things. Why would you do that? But the blessings of the Christian faith, the element that it's well with our soul, come when we meet him face to face. So we're kind of trusting in Jesus. Like, it looks like I'm foregoing all of this worldly influence to follow Jesus. But he says it's worth, he says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Worldly values that just uh, influence us every single day. YOLO, you only live once. That means you've got one life, so you might as well make the most of it. It's the reason behind lots of different divorces. It's the reasons why people selfishly pursue different things, regardless of who it hurts. No regrets. Lance Armstrong said that this week. I have no regrets. Of course you don't, Lance, because you're so in love with yourself, you can't actually see how many people you really, really hurt. They have a ton of regrets for everything that you did. But it's just this mentality. Like, don't have any regrets. You only live once. Just keep on going. Don't look back. Do not look back. It's really dumb to not think about where we have been to understand where we're going. It's really, really dumb. It's like saying, history doesn't matter. I'm not going to learn any of the lessons of history. I'm not going to learn any of the lessons that have happened in my life. I'm a blank slate each and every time. Now, lots of people don't carry that to its nth degree. I was someone that did. I had a close friend when I was 17 killed in a car crash. Remember thinking, well, you've only got one life. Genius, Andy. I might as well live as if there's no tomorrow. Seems fun at first. And then you find yourself with a death sentence over you. You're heading for destruction, you're aware of it, and there's not a thing you can personally do about it. So my encouragement is, just as we understand each day that we need God, not that we're walking around broken, we're just connected to God, the same way, it's really healthy to remember where we've been, who God is, and where he's going to take us. Fundamental steps in discipleship. I' going to speak now just very briefly, uh, about the location of where Jesus was teaching. It's the Mount of Olives. Uh, different people uh, think different things as to where that is. The most important thing, for us to remember this early stage, it's on a mountain. When you are on a mountain, God speaks. don't know if you remember, Moses went up onto the mountain and he received this law. There was an idea that if God is up there in the heavens, if you go up to a mountain, you're kind of closer to him. In Babylon, they built this ziggurat, which is this high, high structure to kind of reach up to God. But Jesus is greater than Moses. He has come down to earth. He sat like a humble teacher. When someone's sitting and teaching, it means they're going nowhere. It's a good thing if it's a good teacher not so good. It was a bad teacher. Uh, he sat there. And Moses received law. Like, this is what kingdom living looks like. Jesus gives law. So the writer Matthew is all about how Jesus fulfills all of this Old Testament. So I just wanted to touch on that. They know that this, is, this could be what God would say to us when Jesus is teaching. So though it seems really strange, the fact that he's done miracles the fact that he teaches with a kind of authority, and the fact that he's on a mountain carries great weight. So if we look at the different uh, steps, first step, first beatitude, you cannot save yourself. The second one, be grieved over our sin. For an application, I'm not going to read it today, Psalm 51. If you write down Psalm 51, you can pray through the Psalms means you read it and you pray it out loud. You say it out loud as a prayer. Psalm 51, David was a man after God's own heart. But he was also an adulterer, a killer, and a fugitive. And he was wrecked from going up to this greatest king that had ever been in Israel. He had dropped to that low. And some of the best bits of Scripture, in my view, are in the Psalms when David is saying, I'm spiritually bankrupt. Help me, God. Look at pretty much every biblical character. There's not actually that much to draw us to them. They're great because they were faithful, but they are just like you and me. They're spiritually bankrupt and get grieved by who they are, grieved by doing the things they don't want to do, and yet having such a hard time to do the things they wish they could. Next week, I'm going to look at the next uh, two Beatitudes. Uh, The following one, it basically means uh, blessed are the meek. It means you cannot offer anything. You can't offer anything to God that's acceptable. And the one after we're going to look at as well is the, the pivot of all of the beatitudes. It means commit your life to Christ. And I'll look at that some more. So you get three internal ones that crescendo into the fourth, which is give your life to Christ, and then the progressive steps afterwards. We'll also next week be looking at uh, the results or how to do these things, and it's to draw near to God. We'll be looking at how James, which you've gone through as a book, gives different practical things to help us draw near to God on a daily basis. I'm going to close my message. Uh, ask the band to come back up. I'm going to close my message. A new story that really, really impacted me a few years ago. It, it had a big kind of heart tug, a soul Uh, grip upon me. And the news was on, it's actually the 14th of January, 2011. So I looked at this news story, it just reminded me of this upside-down kingdom. You have nothing that the world would want, and yet you have Christ, and it's well with your soul. Or you can have uh, everything that the world wants, and yet you've forfeited your soul. And there were some simple facts in relation to this news story, which I'm going to read out to you. It's about a guy named Leroy. I'm not going to give his last name. He was born on the 25th of November, 1958, in Alabama. On the 17th of October, when he was 30, uh, he committed murder. On the 9th of September, 1989, he was sentenced to death. And on the thirteenth of january twenty eleven, at nine ten PM, he was executed by lethal injection. If you followed some of the story, actually it's more than those facts. And the story, some articles were written about it, they actually gave details about the crime that he had done. He got very, very drunk his wife had wanted to leave him. And very, very drunk he went round his sister in law's house where his wife was, with a loaded shotgun. Uh, He shot through the door, entered, and shot his sister-in-law in the shoulder and in the chest. Drunk, he went back out to his car, reloaded his shotgun, and came back into the house. The wife was clearly terrified. She ran out. He shot her in the back on her way out, went back into his car, reloaded his shotgun a couple more times, and fired two bullets in her back over her while holding his baby the baby that he was worried about being lost from his wife. Uh, As I read the article, people were saying he got what he deserved. Good reasons, he deserves to die. For me, there was more of a story. That was my friend that I spoke about at the beginning of my message. His name was Leroy Wright. My mom had been writing to him on death row when I became a Christian. She's the only Christian that she knew. And we connected, and we'd write to each other different stuff about the Bible, different stuff about heaven. And he was so wretched, so much time to think about all the things he had done wrong in uh, death row that he gave his life to Christ. And when he was going to be executed, God worked so many miracles in his life They had a relationship with his daughter. He had a relationship with his wife's family and they appealed for clemency that he wouldn't die now he didn't get it but when i read that story i just knew this is this is the kingdom that's upside down people say he got what he deserved maybe he also got what he didn't deserve which is everlasting life i connected so well with him he was in alabama I was in England and then at seminary with letterite because he didn't have access to a computer. I got on so well with him because I felt our stories were somewhat similar. I had a death sentence with drugs. He had a death sentence as punishment. And the feeling I got when I was drawn out of my addictive life and given a relationship with Christ was exactly like getting clemency on death row. Suddenly being told, everything's forgiven, you're free to go now. Now, my friend didn't get that. But I knew when I read that story, and people are saying things about him. I said, you have no idea what God gave him in the midst of those stuff. Yes, what he did was appalling. But it meant that he was spiritually bankrupt. He was mourned over what he had done. And so in Jesus' eyes, he can even forgive Leroy just like his daughter did, just like his family. That's how much of a changed life there is. And Jesus would say, you're blessed. He wrote to me that it is well with his soul. He wrote to me saying, uh, what good is it to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? He chose not to have any last words. He's executed by lethal injection. But whenever I think of Leroy, I'm always reminded God can forgive everything. And there's a value in understanding we're spiritually bankrupt because now he inherits everything. Can you imagine that God would change you so much that you have a relationship with the baby you were holding when you shot the mother? Now, she didn't want any part of his life, about 12 to 14 years, but she saw in her dad a humble, committed person, and she fell in love with that dad. Friends, I'm going to ask us to respond to the God who reaches all the way down to wherever we are, lifts us up to be with him in the heavenly realms. One who is not impressed by uh, religious outgoings. He just wants a heart that is connected to him. Power, influence, money, self-sufficiency, independence, none of that means anything to him. He wants us to draw near to him and receive the fullness of of a relationship that he offers. We have some people at the front. We'd love to pray for you, whatever a situation may be. But will you stand and worship the God who's worthy of it all?